This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Congressman and newly elected House Democratic Caucus Leadership Representative Jamie Raskin. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning the leadership position. Jordan, it's totally my pleasure and thank you very much. So Congressman, with Democrats winning back the House, what are your top legislative priorities as caucus leadership representative? We're going to kick this off with H.R. 1, um, which is a, a package of very ambitious democracy reforms, because what we saw in 2018, despite the fact that we got 10 million more votes than the Republicans and we had fantastic organizing across the country, um, is that the Republicans continue to frustrate and thwart the Democratic will. We're going to um, have massive gerrymandering reform. So we have independent redistricting commissions in every state. Um, we are going to pass effectively a voter's bill of rights so we can make sure people are not getting thrown off of the rolls or prevented from registering. We're going to try to um, repair the damage that the Roberts Court has done to the Voting Rights Act. Um, And then we're going to engage in what we hope is the most meaningful uh, campaign finance reform and ethics reform in a generation instituting a small donor matching system where candidates would basically raise small donation amounts and then get a match of six to one from the government. And then we have a number of ethics reforms that we're going to be pushing as well. And given that Republicans still control the Senate and the presidency, how do you hope to get this past them? Look, we don't know what the Senate is going to do. We're not sure where McConnell's going to go in any of this stuff. When Obama was president, McConnell basically said his principal goal was going to be to uh, obstruct everything that the Democrats wanted to get done. He may adopt the same posture towards everything that we want to do, uh, you know, on democracy reform, on gun violence, on climate change. And in that case, all we can do is run the House as a real legislative body to have transparency, to have integrity in our operations, to get rid of all the terrible practices that the Republicans uh, instituted over the last couple of years, like voting on bills without having hearings on them and without having any discussion or markup. But we're hoping there's enough pressure in the Senate side from Republicans who are nervous about what they saw in 2018, uh, that they will come to the table. And the criminal justice reform that was passed out of the Senate, I think is a very good sign that the Republicans are waking up to the fact that uh, Americans want real progressive change uh, on everything from uh, criminal justice reform to restoring voting rights to the former prisoners, to climate change, to ethics in government, to uh, helping students with their student loans rather than turning the Department of Education over to the for-profit lenders. I think the whole country is moving in the right direction because of the organizing and galvanizing effect of you know indivisible and do the most good and all of the civil society groups that basically took the reins after the presidential election in 2016 and said, we want to take the country back. 
And while this is not the same thing as HR1, you are a co-sponsor of the Fair Representation Act, which is perhaps the most comprehensive electoral reform bill in recent years. Could you tell us about that? Well, the Fair Representation Act uh, says that every state will have an independent redistricting commission with no politicians on it. So we get out of the gerrymandering business, which basically means politicians choose the voters before the voters choose the politicians. But then uh, having these commissions use principles of proportional representation. People um, often don't realize that the single member districts themselves are a real problem because if you have a 55-45 split in the two parties uh, in a state and you uh, spread that 55-45 split out evenly across the districts, the 55% party is going to get 100% of the seats. And that's, you know, it happens in both directions. The, the Democrats in Massachusetts have every seat in the state's U.S. House delegation, despite the fact that there's a Republican governor and a lot of people are voting Republican. And the same thing has happened in states like, you know, Utah and Arizona. And, you know, there, there are other states where the Republicans have basically been able to take um, a statewide majority and turn it into a 100% shutout in the congressional delegation. What proportional representation says is if you get 60% of the vote, you should get 60% of the seats. If you get 40% of the vote, you should get 40% of the seats. And there are ways of making it work like that. But the single member district is a problem. And so what we're advocating is that states have the independent redistricting commissions and use multi-member districts. And then um, a system like rank choice voting, which is what the country just saw Maine using, which guarantees that the people uh, who win have the most votes, but it's a way of empowering uh, minorities as well so that um, everybody would get represented and you wouldn't get these shutout situations. And how does the current system disempower minority voters and voters of color? Well, part of it, of course, is in the electoral administration process. Um, you know, America is quite unique in not having a national electoral commission, the kind that you find in Canada or in Mexico or most countries on earth. We've got um, thousands of electoral jurisdictions and authorities, really, because of the counties and the and the municipalities that run everything, and so that makes it a very vulnerable and manipulable system, and that has traditionally worked to the disadvantage of uh, minorities. There are, of course, straight up laws that uh, adversely affect minority groups, like the disenfranchisement laws of uh, former prisoners. We know the way the criminal justice system has been used to uh, discriminate against racial minorities in American history. And so when you disenfranchise former prisoners, you are disproportionately affecting minority populations. Now, Florida just saw a great victory for voting rights when the voters overwhelmingly chose to restore voting rights for former prisoners, but we still have seven or eight states left that are permanently disenfranchising former prisoners. And that's something that I hope to deal with. I hope Congress deals with in HR1. I hope that this is something we can um, end in this Congress. We can say, once you've gotten out of prison, you've had every other right restored to you. You should also have your right to vote restored. The vast majority of states have done it, but we're still getting this 
selective disenfranchisement of former prisoners in, in some of the states. You know, another thing uh, that has been working to the disadvantage of all Americans is our money system of politics and specifically Citizens United. We want to amend the Constitution to overturn Citizens United, but we understand that's a tall order. You, it requires a two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate and three-quarters of the states to ratify. And of course, most state legislatures continue to be in the hands of uh, the Republican. Republican Party because of the hangover of past gerrymanders. But we have a proposal that I'm advancing called Shareholders United that will help us deal with the Citizens United problem. The premise of Citizens United, if you read Justice Kennedy's decision, is that when the CEOs spend millions of dollars uh, on campaigns, they're just uh, a vehicle for the political free speech and expression of the shareholders. The problem, of course, is the shareholders not only are they not getting to participate in that decision, they don't even know that the companies are spending money in politics. And so there's something that's very mythological about that concept. But Shareholders United says, let's make it real. Um, any corporation can spend whatever they want in our politics, according to the Supreme Court. But under Shareholders United, they will only be able to spend that money if there's a prior majority vote of the shareholders of the company. And we think the vast majority of shareholders are not going to want to put their money in. They're not going to be able to agree because you've got Republican shareholders and Democratic shareholders and conservatives and liberals and libertarians and radicals and so on. And the second part of the bill says if a majority of the stock is owned by companies um, or the, if a majority of the stock is owned by entities that cannot get involved in politics, like states or cities or uh, pension funds or uh, foundations or universities, then the companies simply can't spend money in politics because a majority of the shareholders are legally forbidden to do so. So it's a way of trying to take Citizens United seriously and making it meaningful. And I hope that's something also that we can pass in this Congress. And you brought up Florida. That's a really interesting case because right now the Republican governor-elect and legislature are trying to reject the will of the voters and not implement Amendment 4. Why is it that Republicans keep supporting these voter suppression methods that disproportionately affect voters of color? Well, it's a great question, Jordan. You know, two of our last five presidential elections went to the popular vote loser, first George W. Bush and then Donald Trump. The Republicans have been thriving on the most undemocratic institutions in the country, the Electoral College, the gerrymandering of our districts, big corporate money uh, coming into our politics, uh, voter uh, disenfranchisement, voter purges, and so on. The demographics are simply against the Republican Party. Um, they've made themselves, especially with Donald Trump and uh, what happened in Charlottesville and the sharp rightward turn in their politics, the party uh, of a um, shrinking white minority of the country. You know, most people are not conservative white men um, in the country, and the demographics of the country are moving in another direction. 
So the Republicans have doubled down on that strategy. But what it requires them to do is to try to keep other people from voting, either through legitimate or illegitimate means, either through, you know, uh, Putin propaganda telling African-Americans not to go vote or by making it more difficult for people to vote, eliminating uh, early voting, you know, using other tactics that discourage turnout. You know, when you've got a small and shrinking part of the electorate, uh, your only strategy for victory um, is to use the undemocratic institutions of the country to try to keep people from participating. And how did demographic change manifest in the results of the 2018 election for Democrats? We got just shy of 10 million votes more than the Republicans did um, in the congressional elections around the country. That's uh, an astonishing margin that uh, was produced I think largely because of the organizing on the ground. I don't think it was because of uh, TV ads and consultants. I think it was because of the resolve and the determination of people after the presidential election in 2016 uh, to take the country back and not to allow this to happen to us again. You know, we saw uh, significant uh, turnout in the uh, African American community in the Hispanic community, uh, among young people, the millennial vote, and uh, women led the way for us. We had uh, a record push of women candidates. We're now going to have more than 100 women uh, representing us in Congress. Um, But we saw basically a a, a women's political revolution uh, in 2018. And I think it's only building towards 2020. The big blue wave arrived uh, in 2018, but I think it's going to turn into a tidal wave in 2020. I mean, nobody is sitting on their hands and nobody's gone home. People are continuing to organize. I was at an indivisible meeting uh, two weekends ago where there were 150 people, you know, after the election took place and people were already out organizing for the elections that are going to happen in 19 in Virginia and in New Jersey, but also getting ready for 2020. So I think that's going to be the ticket for us. And um, it is, uh, you know, an explosion of progressive politics. And um, we're seeing it across the board. We're seeing it with women, with men, with people in every demographic group, with older people, with younger people. America is a progressive country. And I think we're going to see the real culmination um, of all of these trend lines in 2020. And how do you think the influx of Democratic women is going to affect this legislative session? You know, well, we're clearly not going to let the anti-choice movement get away with anything in uh, 2019. We are going to strengthen uh, reproductive freedom. We are going to uh, fight the Trump administration in every turn as they try to create this completely phony First Amendment religious freedom-based right to discriminate against women's health choices or to discriminate against the LGBT community. You know, their their whole propaganda around that is absurd. You know, uh, I mean, there's a just a basic fallacy, uh, you know, where they've been saying, well, commercial establishments or uh, hospitals shouldn't have to serve LGBT people if they don't want to. Look, if you set up a restaurant, a hotel, a motel, a hospital, whatever it is, you have to be open to all comers. We established that during the civil rights movement. Um, you might not approve of uh, interracial marriages, but if you're a clerk working um, 
in a court, you've got to issue the marriage certificate for an interracial couple if they want to get married, just like you've got to uh, issue the marriage certificate for a gay couple that wants to get married or an interfaith couple that wants to get married. You don't have a First Amendment right to prevent other people from leading their lives and being in the stream of commerce and so on. So that's a basic fallacy. um, And uh, it's naked discrimination, which the right wing has rallied behind. And we're not going to allow any of that stuff to go on. I mean, all American citizens have to have equal rights in all places of commerce and in all public places. You have no right to discriminate regardless of what your religious views are. And one of the biggest impediments to freedoms and liberties that you're talking about, these progressive priorities, is going to be likely the conservative majority on the Supreme Court. How are you approaching that? You know, I mean, this is a fallacy that is so deep and so shocking that I think even Justice Roberts won't get behind it. But I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. They have taken the Supreme Court uh, very far to the right. And there are at least four conservative justices who buy all of this nonsense about a religious right to discriminate um, in public settings. But this is a real problem. Uh, The right wing has been engaged in profound court packing at the district court level, at the appeals court level, and of course at the Supreme Court, um, where they just cemented their control with the elevation of Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, it's pretty shocking to think that Justice Roberts is now some kind of swing vote, but it just goes to show how how far to the right they've taken the Supreme Court. I mean, what we need is for people to stand up for constitutional rights and constitutional principles at every level of government and in the public and in the citizenry. We cannot leave it to the Supreme Court. And uh, look, the Supreme Court got a kind of halo around it for a brief period during the Warren Court years where there were you know, decisions like the Miranda decision or Roe versus Wade or Brown v. Board. There were a couple of decades where you could say the Supreme Court really was uh, in the advance of vindicating the rights of the people. But for most of American history, people should be clear, the Supreme Court has been a profoundly conservative and reactionary institution that has sided itself uh, with white supremacy, as it did in the Dred Scott decision or Plessy v. Ferguson. It has sided with uh, the power of the state against individuals and the power of corporations against public regulation. Um, It has retreated to this right-wing baseline uh, with the all of the court packing that's taken place. It just uh, increases the importance of our winning back both houses of Congress, winning back the presidency, and then building progressive power for the long haul and matching what the right wing has done with the Federalist Society uh, with the development of new generations of uh, progressive lawyers and judges who are going to make the Bill of Rights the centerpiece of their work and stand by the rights and liberties of the people. And obviously, the House of Representatives doesn't get to weigh in on Supreme Court nominations or judicial nominations. But is there anything that the Democratic majority can do in response to the Supreme Court? Well, it's a great question. Um, We don't have the direct power of advice and consent, as you say. On the other hand, uh, our Judiciary Committee, which I serve on, does have the power 
to uh, legislate with respect to the court. So one of the things we're very concerned about is the collapse of ethical standards in different parts of uh, the Supreme Court and the judiciary. And we want to work on the recusal standards for judges and justices. We want to look at the involvement with uh, judges and justices with uh, conservative special interest groups and different kinds of junkets and conferences that take place all over the world. Those are things that come within our purview. And there's no reason we can't look at what's going on in the judiciary, even though we don't have the direct power of advice and consent that they've got on the Senate side. And in regards to Brett Kavanaugh, there was a fair deal of discontent about how the FBI investigation into Dr. Ford's story was handled, how it was limited. What are your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, this was, you know, one of the the mounting compendium of frustrations we've experienced, uh, you know, during the last couple of years. Um, There were all of these relevant fact witnesses who had material information uh, about uh, Kavanaugh's testimony who were never interviewed by the FBI and did not become part of the process. And at least at the time, there was a very strong sentiment among my colleagues on the House Judiciary Committee that we needed to investigate the FBI investigation to see why uh, they refused to talk to all of these people uh, who had relevant testimony about uh, what took place both during uh, the events uh, surrounding um, the alleged assault that took place, but also uh, related to uh, Kavanaugh's drinking and his testimony about what he was doing, um, you know, during his high school and college and law school years, um, whole bunches of people came forward to contradict his testimony, and the FBI never spoke to them. So I don't know whether or not we're going to pursue that, just because you know, at this point, we're like a cleanup crew at an eighty-eight car pileup on the highway. I mean, there's so many things that we've got to deal with. Um, you know, we haven't even talked about what's happening at the border and the separation of uh, families from their kids and kids who are still uh, not reunited with their families. And, you know, the treatment of people at the border over the last few weeks, we got to get into that and we got to deal with the DREAM Act and we've got comprehensive immigration reform. Um, we haven't talked about what's taken place in terms of student loans and the way that Betsy DeVos has turned the Department of Education over to uh, the for-profit colleges to wipe out all of the rules and regulations that were developed to try to protect student borrowers and people who still owe a mountain of debt um, and got ripped off by those colleges. So all of these are things that we've got to look at. You know, the Trump administration has put a fox in charge of every hen house um, in Washington. And so we have to systematically go through the departments and agencies to unearth the corruption and try to um, kick out the practices and the policies that have been adopted to turn everything over to the special interests. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com 
slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Green New Deal and why activists have been so passionate about it, even occupying Nancy Pelosi's office? Well, you know, real change, um, meaningful change always comes from social movements and political movements in our country. And, you know, so when people um, are, um, you know, beating themselves up about bipartisanship and, you know, when can we bring the parties together? Um, you know, it's a fine question. And I'm somebody, I'm a middle child. I always like to reach out to the Republicans and so on. But to me, the real question is, how do we empower the movements that really bring change in America? That's the real question, because um, change does not come uh, just from a deal between the parties. The compromise between the parties is the last step in a process that begins with social movements. And I think, you know, Sunrise and all of the environmental groups that have been pushing the Green New Deal um, have the right idea, which is we've got to channel the resources of the country in a direction that makes us uh, responding in an effective way um, to the climate change emergency. The specific details of the Green New Deal or the Green Deal, as I've called it, remain to be spelled out. I mean, we it's it, it's not arriving like a 187 plan with every specific thing in there, but the basic contours of where we want to go um, are clear. We need to break from the carbon barons and the carbon paradigm, which is now doom for civilization. Um, and that means we need to disengage the subsidies from big oil and big gas and big coal. And we've got to invest in the renewable energies that are going to be the salvation of our species. Um, and we've got to come up with the best plan we can come up with. You know, with some people, you know, we've got to come up with the best plan we can find, whether it's a carbon tax or, you know, whether it's a tax and dividend proposal, or there's a lot of different ways of, of slicing and dicing. And we need to have that debate. We don't want to prejudge that question. That's what this task force is about. And the task force or the select committee will come up with the best ideas and channel them into the legislative committees, like the Energy and Commerce Committee or Ways and Means, the other ones um, that are relevant to it, that have jurisdiction. And move them to get past. But what I like about it is that a select committee will help us to shock the system. There's a way in which we can get too complacent. And certainly the Republicans are complacent to the point of irresponsibility. They're denying that climate change even exists. And that is just a threat to everybody else's survival. You mentioned healthcare. That was probably the biggest issue of this campaign cycle for Democrats. You also mentioned how Republicans worked to repeal Obamacare under Obama, knowing he would not actually sign that into law. 
yet were totally unprepared when it came to having another plan. How exactly are Democrats going about avoiding this as more and more people, including now a majority of Republican voters, support Medicare for all? Yeah, I mean, I think you you make a, a great point. I mean, reality has a way of uh, catching up with people. That's what's great about small D democratic politics. I mean, the, you know, the Republicans go out and demagogue against Obamacare just because, the, you know, they decided to name it after him, despite the fact that the Affordable Care Act was based on a Republican plan that was hatched at the Heritage Foundation that Newt Gingrich championed. And the individual mandate, by the way, was the heart of it. Um, this was what Romney Care was all about in Massachusetts. But they can rail against it. Uh, but then in the final analysis, you know, millions of Americans and lots of their constituents are depending on it. And they're talking about people throwing people off of their health care. And so there was a rebellion in the country when they were uh, when they finally had the opportunity to actually repeal the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the country went out to the town meetings and made it just politically impossible for the Republicans to proceed with that. They knew that they were facing insurrectionary conditions across the country. There's no way they could hang on to their jobs by taking health care away from Americans. Now, I've always been a single payer person because I've lived in societies that have universal health care and I've seen it work and I know that it works. And we are the richest country that's ever existed and it's the richest moment in our uh, history. And we can afford to have health care for all of our people as an expression of our mutual respect and investment in the success of the whole. We can do that. We must do that. And it's something that works for everybody. Uh, the... Affordable Care Act, again, which was based on the Heritage Foundation proposal and Romney Care in Massachusetts, was a huge advance over what we had before. It got tens of millions of people their health insurance, but it's flawed in a lot of different ways. And we can make those changes to move to a Medicare for all system. And I think that's where we're going. Are we going to be able to do it with the Republicans in control of the Senate? Almost certainly not. I think that they continue to be deeply invested in the power of the insurance companies. Um, and uh, we've got nothing against insurance companies, but we think that we've got to put the health of the people first. And that's the basic question. What's our value going to be? And I think we have to start with the value that as a matter of mutual commitment as Americans, we want to extend healthcare to everybody. And we don't think that in a sickness should be the cause for a family bankruptcy. And yet in a majority of the cases, it is. Most individual bankruptcies in America are caused by a medical misfortune. And that's just wrong. It, it takes a misfortune, which is an illness like breast cancer or colon cancer or cystic fibrosis or multiple sclerosis or sickle cell anemia, and it turns a medical misfortune into a social injustice. It's an injustice because we can do something about it. We don't have to organize society in such a way as to leave people to their own devices when they get sick. We can do better than that. And you know, I think that we can make um, a national healthcare commitment for social progress and for uh, economic progress and a breakthrough for America. And lastly, where can folks find you online and how can people get in touch? You can find me on the political side um, at uh, jamieraskin.com. I've got you know, my campaign and I also have uh, a project called Democracy Summer, 
where we train high school and college kids uh, during the summer months to become uh, progressive political organizers. We uh, educated 175 young people in the summer of uh, 2018 and unleashed them in more than a dozen congressional campaigns. And and then uh, if you want to reach me at my office, um, you can also just go to the House of Representatives uh, website and you can find me here. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today, Congressman, and talking about Democratic priorities. We'd love to catch up with you later in 2019 to hear about the progress the party has made. Please, let's do it. And by the way, it's raskin.house.gov. And, uh, you know, I'm a professor of constitutional law, too. So you can find my books, you can find my articles. There's no shortage of material out there that you can find. And uh, please be in touch with me. I'm thrilled about... um, what the millennials are doing. Um, I've got three millennials in my house. Those are my children. Uh, They're all politically active and engaged, and they teach me new stuff all the time about how to connect with young people and the technology. But I love what you guys are doing. So thank you so much. Yes, of course. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune in to the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.